0: Welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual community dedicated to the free and responsible search for truth and meaning. I'm Leela Galt, ministerial intern here at First UU Church of Austin. I have with me my lay leader, Kai Flannery. And we want to say thank you so much to each of you for coming today. I am really glad to see you. If you are new here, I especially want to welcome you as a visitor We come from a long tradition of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in every person. One of the ways that we greet the divine here on Sundays is to turn and welcome the people around us. Please say with me the words by which we light our chalice, symbol of our faith. The words are printed in our order of service. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another.
1: It's my great pleasure to be here this morning for Leila Galt's inaugural service. We're so glad that she is part of our ministry team. Um, This morning we're going to start our service with uh, some Mary Oliver. One day you finally knew what you had to do. And began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible, It was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones, but little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, to save the only life that you could save. Unitarian Universalism is a faith
0: without a creed. We don't have a set of required beliefs to which we must all agree, and we draw from all the world's wisdom and faith traditions. People have asked what holds us together, if not for perfectly matching beliefs. One of the things that unites us here at this church is our mission. Our mission statement, which is printed in your order of service, expresses this congregation's common purpose. The community says it together every Sunday. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build a beloved community. If you'd like to know more about what we mean when we say beloved community, there's a poster in our fellowship hall with some words from the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Center that explains the vision of the beloved community.
1: Our reading this morning comes from Celeste Snowber. Know there is a flow working within the vessels of your life and blood through each spiritual artery and vein which has a current all to its own. You cannot stop the life stream, only enhance its surge. Listen for the sound of grace inhabiting the map of your path. Let what is unseen carry you. In its crest, give into the wave of the ebb and flow of your own pulse. Who knows where your journey will lead or what you will discover. You are in a new chapter of your own autobiography. Rewriting your own narrative every moment. You take a breath.
0: This is the time in our service where we breathe together. And in breathing together, we feel the loving presence of those around us. We follow our breath to that deeper place inside. The place of greater wisdom. The divine within each of us. Breathing together, we enter a time of sacred silence. But remembering that in this congregation, human sounds, and especially sounds of small ones, are part of that sacred silence. Let us enter into the silence together. (music) Thank <music>
1: This is maybe a strange confession from somebody
0: wearing a ministerial robe, but I'm pretty new to religion. I grew up unchurched, and I adopted Unitarian Universalism as my family's faith in 2012. In 2015, I decided that I would leave um, practicing law and become a Unitarian Universalist minister. As kind of a warm-up, I spent a year working half-time as a lawyer and taking one course per semester at the seminary. I studied Biblical Hebrew and the book of Exodus in Hebrew. I had never owned a Bible before seminary, and I needed something that I was more fluent in than Biblical Hebrew to help me translate the concepts from the book of Exodus into something meaningful for me. So, in parallel with Exodus, and possibly to procrastinate reading the book of Exodus in Biblical Hebrew, I read up on Carl Gustav Jung, the founder of Analytical Depth Psychology, and he helped me see the archetypal elements of my seminary experience. As Moses declared during his psychologically formative years in the Median wilderness, I've been a stranger in a strange land. To illustrate, let me tell you about one of my first visits to the chapel at my seminary, the Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary. I went there after my first Hebrew class to kind of catch my breath and calm my brain down in this beautiful sacred space. It is magnificent. It's like this tiny dollhouse version of those spired and buttressed cathedrals from old Europe, and nobody else was in there, so I could really let my mouth hang open and kind of take it all in. I was still loaded up with books from class, and I went to put them down on this ornate glass-top table so that I could get a better look at this even more ornate candelabra behind it and then I discovered it wasn't a glass-top table at all it was a giant basin of holy water <laughs> oh they love those you use at my seminary Fortunately, I was alone in the chapel, so there wasn't anybody there to witness this baptism by faux pas. (laughs) But but I was also very suddenly alone with the knowledge that my egocentric identity, Lee Legault, attorney at law, wasn't going to get me anywhere in this new place where I didn't know glass from water or up from down. So immersing myself in the Moses myth, helped me see that I was in fact losing my comfortable, safe, egocentric identity in that foreign place, and that that wasn't just super embarrassing and wrenching, but it was also a really wonderful psychological opportunity. I had taken the very first step towards a journey that Jung called an individuated life. Individuation is Jung's word for the transformation from an unconscious, ego-bound person to a person whose ego is in dialogue with the self, with a capital S. The self is the central, creative, organizing life energy. I think we, you use, would call it the spirit of life. I don't think Jung would love it, but I'm going to go ahead and use um, a carrot as an analogy, because that has helped me. I think of the self as all the dirt, this vast expanse of soil that is, in fact, undergirding and nourishing the carrot and the little green leaves above the carrot. And those little green leaves pushing out of the top of the carrot, that's your ego. And our ego is our sense of identity, our I. But prior to individuation, our ego doesn't know about the soil or about the carrot, it thinks it's growing all alone, without any support at all. When I called Moses a myth, I meant no disrespect by that, in Jungian terms, myths are sacred stories. And irrespective of whatever we judge as their external historic truth, they have value because they are true on the inside. Myths are maps. And they contain keys, keys that Jung called archetypes, symbolic elements that weave their teaching into the fabric of our souls. Let me tell you part of the Moses myth from a Jungian perspective, focusing on the archetype of the wilderness journey. So Moses is born in Egypt, to Hebrew parents at a time, and I know this is going to be really hard to believe, but this is a myth, when the Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, was xenophobic, and he was really afraid of the ballooning population of Hebrews, so he decided to persecute the young because of his own fears, and he ordered all the Hebrew male babies to be killed at birth. So to save her son, Moses' mom weaves a basket of reeds and she puts her infant son in it and she entrusts him to the river fortunately the pharaoh's daughter finds moses and adopts him and raises him as an egyptian prince moses as young would say we all do spends about the first third of his life developing his ego those little green leaves the Exodus text on Moses' life is very spare, like a few words spare. But we imagine that he led a pretty swanky life of power and privilege there in the Egyptian um, palace. He had some inkling that he had Hebrew roots, we're told, but he was living life as Egyptian royalty. The Hebrew word for mitzraim, I learned in biblical Hebrew, aptly aptly translates to narrow, constricted place. And right now, in our myth, Moses' sense of the world is narrow and constricted. And in his ego-bound psychological state, he is feeling safe but protected. Driven by some internal sense of restlessness, young man Moses, with his little fresh spring green ego leaves, leaves the palace. And he ventures out into the Hebrew work camps. And he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And seeing this injustice, he becomes enraged. Not just enraged, but murderously enraged. And he beats the Egyptian soldier to death. And then he hides the body. Now for Jungians, this is a perfect example of the psychological stage of alienation. That's when your ego, your little leaves, get really impressed with themselves and just full of themselves and their own power. And then you engage in some kind of rash act that defies societal conventions. So the next day, Moses is inexplicably drawn back to the Hebrew work camps. And this time, he sees two Hebrews fighting with each other. And he becomes enraged again, and his ego puffs up, and he says, Stop! Why are you two fighting? You're brothers in oppression! Or something to that effect in biblical Hebrew. One of the Hebrews stops fighting just long enough to put Moses in his place. And he says, Who died and made you Pharaoh? Are you going to kill us too, like you did that Egyptian soldier? Oh, snap! (laughs) This is the beginning of Moses' ego demotion and beginning of his identity crisis. So right now Moses is not fit to lead anyone anywhere. Sure enough, Pharaoh finds out about what Moses did to that soldier and he orders his execution. So Moses flees the narrow straits of wilderness of of I'm sorry, frees the narrow straits of Egypt to the wilderness of Midbar. Now, in a wilderness journey, in a myth, that's an archetype for a different stage, a stage called alienation. Alienation is basically the most painful, dark time of suffering you can imagine. It's when all you thought you were, all you thought you had, all you ever knew is abruptly taken away or discovered to be woefully insufficient. I think a seminary friend described alienation best when he said, Moses had to get the Moses out of Moses. And Moses does. In the wilderness, Moses comes across a tribe of semi-nomadic people, the Midianites. Midianites, they don't build palaces or pyramids. They herd sheep in the middle of nowhere. Moses spends years in Midian, he marries, he has kids, he herds a lot of sheep, and he does some growing up. Painful as it is, alienation is probably the single biggest chance for psychological growth in a lifetime. Because once that overinflated ego, those little green leaves, get all battered to bits, they finally have a chance to realize that there's something other than them that they're rooted in something bigger and deeper, the soil of the self. And archetypally, this reunion usually occurs in the wilderness. So one day, while Moses is out herding sheep yet again, he sees a bush, a bush that is burning but not consumed. And he hears an awesome voice calling his name, I submit to you that in a less developed psyche, the internal monologue might have gone something like this. I've come to a fork in the path, and on my left there's a really weird and creepy burning bush, and it's talking to me, and it knows my name. And on the right, there's just a regular sheep trail. Which way should I go? But Moses forks left. And that has made all the difference. Now Moses is 80 when he has this initial reunion with the self at the burning bush. And I really like that because young stressed that individuation is not for the young pups. It very rarely, if ever, takes place in the first half of life, usually in the latter third. So Moses, now he goes back to Egypt and he's, got, he's going to have a little talk with the Pharaoh. And he's going to talk to the Pharaoh about some plagues. But we're going to save that part of the myth. That's for another day. For today, our focus is on the fact that Moses has grown a great deal since the last time he was in Egypt. And this time, he is able to lead the Hebrews. And he does. Out of the narrow straits of Egypt. As I understand it, this part of the Moses myth, it shows that even though it's not a fast or easy and certainly not a painless process, that bending, bending our will to that inner work of individuation can be a path to psychological freedom. I want to leave you with three tools, tools you might want to try out on your own, in your own searches for truth and meaning. First, read myths regularly and read them for yourselves. I believe a myth has got to be reinterpreted in order to maintain its vitality because it's a living connection to the ever-evolving world. A myth describes the relationship between humanity and the spirit of life, and I believe that relationship is not static. It's dynamic, direct, and evolving. While myths abound in the world's holy books, for sure, I think they are almost certainly contained in those few books that are holy to you. So for me, these would include The Alchemist, A Wrinkle in Time, all eight of the Harry Potter books. Know the myths that are sacred to you and reread them from time to time so that their archetypes, those internal symbols, can do their work on your conscious and unconscious mind and move you along in the right direction. Second, practice listening for the still small voice. Follow it in minor matters, as I hypothesized that Moses did when he left the safety of the palace and went to the Hebrew work camp. But also don't be surprised if there are times in your symbolic wilderness journey when it's not a still small voice and it's a really loud and scary burning bush instead. I think that you're less likely to turn away from the burning bush if you've practiced for years ahead listening to the still, small voice. Third, mythologize your own life. Dwell in the internal rather than your external progress and see those myths, those archetypes playing out. Notice when your ego has gotten inflated and you're too locked down in your little safe leaf life. And notice, too, when you're in the wilderness, and honor, how arduous that is. In Jung's autobiography, he exclusively discusses his inner life. Not the famous people he met, not the awards he won, not the world wars, not the historic events, just the internal shifts, his wilderness journeys, his burning bush experiences, because that's where the real action is. You don't have to live a life on the scale of Moses. What I love most about this Jungian paradigm of individuation is that everyone's inner journey matters a great deal. And not just to you. Your advances, however modest, towards individuation benefit all of humanity because we all draw from that soil, from that self. I'm going to leave you with a story that I've liked all my life and that I like a lot more after learning about individuation. A man goes to a construction site, and he sees three people working. And he says to the first person, what are you doing? And the man doesn't even look up, and he says, I'm laying some bricks. And he says to another worker, what are you doing? This person kind of rocks back on his heels and says, yeah, I'm I'm building a wall. Then he walks over to a third person, and he says, what are you doing? She's kind of humming to herself, and she stands up and looks around, surveys the worksite, and says, I'm building a great cathedral. From a Jungian perspective, every life is building a great cathedral, a cathedral of the self. We
1: extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth,
0: the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Go forth with our love and support to lay the bricks of your great cathedral for yourself, for us, and for all the souls that come after us. And may the spirit of life go with us all.